0: Welcome to episode 272 of TechSync, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. In this episode, Jason is talking to Michael Wormsley, founder of CodeAvengers.com.
1: Well, Michael, thanks for uh, coming on the show.
0: Thank you, Jason. Great to be with you guys.
1: So why don't you uh, start off by telling us a little bit about uh, what Code Avengers is exactly.
0: Okay, so yeah, Code Avengers is... Uh, a website that contains interactive online courses that teach computer programming and web development uh, in a game like and, I guess, gamified manner. Um, we're focusing on teaching you, giving you the skills to build apps, games, as well as websites. And in addition to the online courses, we also do in person training. So we run code camps. At this stage, uh, for high school students, but we're also moving into running them for for adult entrepreneurs.
1: Cool. You know, you, the the reason I think I came ac- or we came across you is I uh, I, might have, I don't know if it was a listener, what someone who either works with you or works at Code Avengers, listen to the show. Do you know? Yes. So,
0: um, so it's it's kind of a long story. Well, fits into the <laughs> the long story. Um, so it's a guy I actually met through Code Avengers. So he he did our courses right at the beginning, actually a week after I I launched, and okay. he contacted me and said, "Hey, do you want some help marketing this?" And so uh, he worked with me fairly intensely for you know a couple months, and we've sort of remained in daily contact for the last two and a half years, and so he sort of does bits and pieces for me. Uh, working around the the whole bunch of startups that he's he's working on himself.
1: Cool. Yeah. So I, I, I guess he emailed I, I, He emailed me like what, like uh, a month or two ago. And we've been kind of, we played a little bit of phone tag. And in the interim, my my son, my 10 year old son, Colby was, um, well, he, he in school that he had gotten through some like math stuff he's supposed to do. And the teacher's like, well, what do you want to do with And We got to have something to do. And so we're trying to figure out maybe he could do some like programming stuff. And I initially was going to have him do code Academy, but then I looked at code Avengers and, and after Colby tried code of uh, code Academy for, uh, for a couple of days, I had him do code Avengers. And then he's just like, forget code code Academy. Um, he's all about code Avengers. Like he, he really enjoys it. And what he said, and this is why i like you to maybe do a little compare and contrast against code Academy, which is kind of like, I guess, got a, a lot of mind share. Um, is that he, he said Code Academy was like, you could only do one thing. It's like, do this, and you have to do exactly that, where Code Avengers allows you to be a little more creative. Does that sound right?
0: That sounds, that sounds absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, when I, when I actually had this idea for the site, um, Code Avengers, it was yeah, around three and a half years ago, mm-hmm. which was just a little while before Code Academy started. And basically there were a whole lot of tutorials out there, but they weren't very interactive. They weren't very fun and, and they weren't, you know, gamified in the way that sites like Code Avengers, Code Academy, Code School are. Um, and so I started working on a little prototype and then Code Academy actually launched. And I thought, oh, hey, this is, they're kind of doing what I thought I was envisaging at, at, at the time. Um, But after trying out Codecademy and sort of waiting for six months for them to really nail the vision I had, um, they didn't quite do it. And there was sort of, I I don't know, I wrote a list of about 20 things that I didn't really like about Codecademy. And and, now, don't get me wrong, I I think what they're doing is great. uh, And then I sort of read the blogs and found out, yeah, other people sort of recognize these same um, problems that I did, one of which was you know, what your son's just pointed out there. Um, they didn't have as much room for, for creativity, but yeah, there's there's a whole lot of other things. And so in the end, I decided I was going to set about trying to develop a site that did fulfill the vision that I had. And that's where Code Avengers came from.
1: Yeah, you know, and I, I think, you know, it's, it's like if you have one, one restaurant opened in your town... <laughs> Even if it was a great restaurant, it's like, you know, it's just one type of food, or right. So there's always going to be room for other variations. You know, it's like you may not always like French food, or you may not always be in the mood for steak or something, you know, even if it's like a great steakhouse. So, no, that's not working for everybody because what about vegetarians or whatever. So I, I think it's totally cool to be like, you know, Code Academy's fine, but here are 20 things that I think are wrong with it, or I think can be done differently. So, why don't, why don't we start off by just I don't know if you, if you can, even off the top of your head, list some of those things because I think that's a really interesting thing, and, and then and maybe right. f- maybe fill in the background of of of, of maybe. Uh, well, let's start with Eric. Why don't you just give us the, you know, a thing that you can pick off pick off the top of your head that you think were Code Academy didn't do quite right, or at least the way you okay. thought have it to be done.
0: Now, um, I guess the first thing to point out is is my background. So at the time, I was doing a, a PhD in computer assisted education. Mm-hmm. So. I very much came from an academic education background as opposed to a business background. Um, So initially those 20 things I was pointing out were basically flaws in, I guess, the pedagogy. Now that this is a word that I only learned in working with the education department at at university, but it's basically the the way they were teaching things was, was ineffective um, or was not as effective as as it could have been. So, just to give a few examples, um, you know, in their lesson, in their descriptions of, of tasks that they'd get you to do, there was lots of technical vocabulary, there was, you know, a sprinkling of technical vocabulary that hadn't been defined earlier. And right. so that just caused difficulties for students. Um, they had different people writing the different lessons. And so it, it wasn't very coherent. There was, you know, lessons that were assuming knowledge that, hadn't been taught previously. Um, and that was really just because, yeah, it was a whole bunch of different people writing the lessons. Um, then there were other things like putting creativity into the types of examples you use in your lessons and making those really interesting, exciting, and fun. They hadn't really done that. Some of the lessons were interesting and fun. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there was the, the creativity and, and, interest that went into or an effort that went into providing interesting examples that that the students would work on during the lessons. Um, then some of the other I think really key problems that they that they had in the early days was their engine for checking students' code. So those who haven't tried Code Academy, basically uh, the courses consist of a series of exercises where they say they introduce a, a coding principle and then they say, okay, write some code that um, does A, B, C, and D. And then you click a button that says check, and it will check whether or not your code's correct. And in the early stages, at least, and it still applies somewhat, uh, the way Code Academy checked your code, it would often mark it incorrect even when your code was correct. And in a lot of other cases, it would mark your code as correct even though it was incorrect and and so, you know, when I said about developing Code Avengers, I wanted to develop that validation side of things in a way that it would only mark your code as correct if it was correct and only fail it if it wasn't correct. So, I mean, there's, there's a couple of examples.
1: Right, right. Um, well, what I, I mean, that, that, I think that's a, a very big deal because I think, you know, I mean, we've all been students at some point in our lives obviously and 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 whenever a problem is like wrong in the book it is it's a nightmare you know because you're like I don't know I'm really confused you know it's like there's an example that's wrong or there is an answer in the back of the book where you go to check your answer and you know it's it's wrong and, and just totally screws you up and if you don't have anyone there to look over your shoulder and go, oh, no, don't worry about that. That's a mistake. And, and and that's the case with these online learning environments. It's like, you know, you don't really necessarily have somebody there. So I think that's a really big deal. Um, why, don't, uh, why don't you, um, you know, then fill in a little bit more in the background, because I think I I, I love the origin stories. I think they're great. And right? um, Yeah, I mean, they're, they're usually like, I, I mean, stories are usually the most fun thing to listen to anyway, but they also sort of paint a better picture of really what you know, how everything happened then just sort of like this two, three line description and, and give people a better feel for it. So if you, if you wouldn't mind, just give us a little background of like, you know, what you were doing and how you got, how you started building a, you know, an MVP and all that. Cause that's, that'd be really fun to hear.
0: Right. Okay. So my, my initial motivation for the sites, as I mentioned, I was, I was doing a PhD in computer assisted education. And actually for that, I was developing uh, software that helps people learn to read a foreign language. So foreign languages is is another area that I'm passionate about. And so I developed some software that helps people learning to read Spanish. And at the same time, I was working on a few other little side projects. Um, and I had a brother who had learned to code. He was at high school and, and planning on studying coding at university. And so I was keen to have him learn HTML, CSS, and JavaScript so that he could work with me or help work with me on these side projects. And so I threw him at a few web resources that I'd to code with uh, or learned, you know, front-end development with things like W3Schools. Uh, and he wasn't overly, I guess, engaged by W3Schools. Um, and yet when I threw uh, little games at him, so there's, there's a site called Hack This Site that that teaches you a bit of coding through um, challenges that relate to hacking and computer security. And when I threw that at him, he just ate it up. He absolutely loved it. And, you know, spent hours even though the challenges were sort of quite advanced. And so um, I guess what I was, was wanting to do was combine the, the game like feel of, of hack, of the challenges on hack the site with the clear, simple instructions on a, on a website like W3 schools to develop, a gamified learning environment that made learning the basics of coding really fun. Because once you know the basics and you're able to build things, you know, coding's a blast. But learning the the basics can can be a bit tedious. And at the same time, I was also teaching uh, and tutoring for first and third year computing courses at my high school, uh, sorry, at my university. And I was dissatisfied with uh, the way they were being taught. I mean, we were running tutorials where we we're working through problems on a whiteboard and then getting students to write code on with paper and pen. Um, and often, you know, it would take three or four weeks or some of five weeks into the semester before you'd realize which students in your class were actually struggling and, and understanding what you're teaching. So I really thought that there was a better way to, to use technology to enhance both the teaching in the classroom, but also to enable fun and effective online learning. So, so that was the motivation. And so I started just playing around with some ideas, developing some concepts, um, or developing a bit of an MVP, I guess. And then, as I mentioned, Code Academy launched, and so I put that on the back burner and didn't pick it up again for another uh, six months um, when I wasn't quite satisfied with, with the way Code Academy was, was developing their product. So it took me about, how long was it? Five months to develop my first complete introductory JavaScript course. Um, at the same time, I was, I was writing a PhD thesis. Um, and about a month after I started, my wife gave birth to our first child. So it was a bit of a, a hectic um, five months and a big learning experience because not only was I... Um, trying to work out what was involved in, in being a father, um, trying to work out how to write a PhD thesis that made sense, um, mm-hmm. and trying to develop a product. But I also had to do a lot of study about, um, I guess, startups. So before I started developing Code Yeah, that's,
1: of a, that, that's, ins- that's insane. I mean, doing all three yeah. of those things at the, same, at the same time is just crazy. I mean, that's actually some – that's unfortunately kind of the way – the kind of thing I would do (laughs) just to try and take out way too much. And then it's just your life. It just, just like you said, just becomes incredibly hectic and it's just crazy. I mean, what did your, what did your wife say about all this?
0: Yeah. good. And just to add in another thing. So I was also playing sports. I was training for marathons. um, Yeah. And doing this all, all during that five month period. Uh, My wife, Well, obviously she wasn't happy with the amount of time I was spending (laughs) developing, um, well, Code Avengers, because, I mean, that was the thing I was spending the most time on. The others all became side projects, I guess, including being a father. But I guess the positive thing was I was working at home. And so while I wasn't always there in in mind, um, at least I guess I was there in body. Um, but, But, I mean, To begin with, I was just kind of saying, oh, this is something that I'm looking at incorporating into my PhD. It wasn't really a business. Uh, But then about five months in, we started talking, oh, maybe this could become a business. And I had family members that were sort of helping me out in brainstorm sessions and choosing a domain name and all that sort of stuff. Um, And so when she started hearing the business word being thrown around, she said, well, as long as you don't spend a cent of our savings – um, I guess you can do, you know, give it a go for a few months and, and see what happens. Yeah.
1: Right. That's, that's, that's fine. You know, so she's, he's like the typical, uh, the wife playing the typical role of the sensible person who's watching the checkbook and the bank account and, you know, and you're like, Oh, you know, head, like head in the clouds, entrepreneur, technologist, you know, it's like, it's such a common, it seems like that's such a common scenario. So so, what happened? Did you uh, did you pretty much leave the bank account alone and just uh, uh, I don't know, try and you know uh, run off your own steam? Or I mean, I guess you had to spend you know a little bit of money, right, for for even just the, buying a domain name and uh, paying for servers and stuff. But I mean, beyond that, did, was it all pretty much just you know built for free?
0: Yeah. Well, so yeah, I I had to buy a domain name, and so that was you know seven dollars or whatever. Um, now in terms of hosting, so initially I hosted it on Google app engine, well, it's actually still hosted on Google app engine, which had free quotas. So that was one of the reasons I guess I went with Google app engine was the fact that it had fairly sizable free quotas. So even server time, I think I only paid maybe before I got first revenue, you know, $50. Um, it wasn't a large amount. So, so yeah, I mean, largely I did I did hold to that. It meant I couldn't spend a cent on graphic design and had to sort of try and, well, I, I wrote my sister into doing a few things and then, you know, tried to do the best that I could myself. But when, when we launched, which was, or launched, you know, I guess our first course to the public after five months, it certainly didn't look very pretty, um, but I hadn't spent any more than $7. So yeah.
1: So you, so you, so you did it right. I mean, you know, say is like, just launch ugly launch quickly. Don't spend a lot of money up front. I mean, you kind of, you did it right. I mean, at least according to sort of like the lean startup mantra, I guess.
0: That's right. I mean, most of my time and energy, well, which was the thing I was really interested in relation to my PhD. And at this stage, as I said, I was still trying to incorporate it into my PhD. Um, if, anything just as a way to justify to my supervisor that I was not writing my thesis. Um, And so, yeah, my focus was really on on the courses and getting the courses and and the pedagogy side of things correct so that so the learning was effective. Um, So, yeah, I mean, on the on the course side of things, I think they were really good. But in terms of the look and feel of the site, it, it was
1: not great. Well, I mean, it looks beautiful now. So I'm take, I take it you hired a professional designer or something to, to, to get it all done, right?
0: Yeah, you, you could say that. Um, so in actual fact, it, he was a 17-year-old who um, contacted me. And he was actually a student at one of the schools that was using Code Avengers. Um, and he contacted me saying, hey, you know, are you looking for any design work to be done? Now, I had lots of people contacting me saying, hey, it looks like your site needs some design work. You know, your courses are great. But, um, yeah, so he was actually using Code Avengers in his classroom and, you know, was really impressed by the, the courses. He was really impressed by the fact that the students liked them way more than Code Academy, which they had been using the previous semester. And... Um, yeah, he sent me his portfolio. I checked it out and it just happened that at that time we were in the process of weighing up between a couple of other more experienced professional developers, uh, professional uh, graphic designers. And in the end, his work was was comparable to them. And so I decided to, to go with him. I liked, um, I liked the ideas he'd shared with us and liked the fact that he was keen to Basically, continue working with us on a contract basis for as long as we needed.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it looks great now. I'm just looking at it. I mean, really, uh, it's first rate. So you got quite a deal there. It sounds like. Um, well, you know, let, let's talk a little bit about that course development. I mean, so you're coming out of the gate. You're working on this on your own. I mean, I, I, I'm assuming you know, with your experience having to uh, teach first and third year university students, you had some sense of of you know how you wanted the courses to work, but how did you? Um, how did you actually test them out? I mean, if there's one thing that would I would imagine would need a fair amount of beta testing um, to get right, it would be uh, the actual course material.
0: Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I had I had a lot of ideas, and obviously, I'd I'd gone through everything Codecademy had to offer, and I'd, and I'd gone through a lot of material on other sites, um, and put a lot of careful planning into it. But basically, what I did is I roped my wife into to being tester. So she was at home on maternity leave, so had, I guess, time up her sleeves when she wasn't feeding baby. Um, and so yeah, she basically I'd develop one lesson, which is, is about 15 minutes worth of learning, and I'd test it on her, and often she'd have problems, and so I'd then refine the lesson, and she'd have to do the lesson a second time, and then once at least she got through the lesson okay, Um, then I'd move on to the following lesson and I'd send that lesson out to, to my siblings. And so, and then that'll test it and provide feedback and kept going that way for that entire first course before I launched, uh, to the public. And once I launched the first course to the public, obviously then I started getting, you know, feedback of things I could improve, uh, from the users all over the world uh, and But yeah, with, with the, the following courses that I developed, I, I followed a similar process, um, but I guess the, the more we've gone and the, the more users we've accumulated, we've, we've started relying on, I guess, beta tester users to, to play the role that my, my wife did. Um, but then at the same time, I've also learned a lot about what's required to, to get it right the first time.
1: Yeah, because I would imagine that because of its linear nature, so if you screw something up early, early on, you know, and you've already had a bunch of people use it, it'd be kind of difficult to switch everything around. You're like, well, we actually need to introduce uh, two or three lessons in the, within the first 10, and we want to move stuff around. Well, if, if I have already completed the first 10 lessons, and all of a sudden I have holes in my lessons or whatever, you know, it would just be kind of weird. Like, how do you, how do you deal with something like that? Or how have you even had to deal with <laughs> it?
0: Uh, yes we have. yes we have um i mean just as an example there's there's still something that that we're going to deal with very shortly so in our level 1 html course we've kind of discovered that there's a few bits where people kind of not not everyone but you know a, a sizable chunk of the user base just get stuck and so we feel that there's a couple extra lessons we need to slot in there just to make it easier for a a wider proportion of our user base. Um, Exactly how we're going to do that, we're still deciding, but there have been other cases with other courses where we've had to chuck in or move 10 lessons from a level one course to a level two course. And, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not easy just to chop and change things um, because the way we've designed the courses is every lesson follows on from the previous lesson. So basically every lesson is introducing a new concept as well as practicing and reviewing what you've covered in the the previous lessons. So, yeah, you really do have to, you know, plan things well up front and and get things right with, with your, you know, alpha testing, I guess.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, cause I, cause I, I guess you'd have to do a lot of communication with your users, too. So you're like, hey, FYI. <laughs> <laughs> you know that we're doing x like you you you've you completed these five lessons but now you know they've been moved to another course or whatever so uh, you probably i imagine you'd have a lot of confusion if your communication was at all lacking um so um what what exactly is your uh, target demographic i mean are you going after do you assume that it's mostly The young adults, like uh, late high school, college, people early in the careers, or is it kids or big combination or or what? Yes, good question.
0: Um, So initially, actually, one of of my other motivations for developing Code Avengers was that here in New Zealand, uh, so I'm actually from New Zealand, so I'm on the other side of the world. um, We had a new high school computing curriculum that had come in that was quite a bit more advanced than the previous curriculum, and it introduced programming at a, at a whole nother level to what had been taught. And the teachers hadn't been given a lot of resources to, to teach this new curriculum. So I developed our introductory coding courses to be aligned with the new curriculum to make it easy for teachers to uh, incorporate the courses into their um, curriculum. So. With that in mind, I kind of the, the initial version of the site was very much targeted, I think, at high school students, um, just because yeah, that's what I was targeting. Targeting. So at the end of every lesson, there's bonus games where the students get to you know shoot HTML tags and shoot bits of code and and that sort of thing, which really was yeah targeted at high school students. But I found that it's as it got to the stage, eighteen months into development, that um, I guess my wife started asking me, so are you going to try and make some money from this? Because at least for the first 18 months, the, the <laughs> courses were completely free. Um, and so so I, in my discussions with schools, I'd kind of realized that it's not actually that easy to make money from schools. And if I didn't offer a substantial amount for free to the schools, they probably wouldn't have even tried it. So um, I decided... Yeah, yeah, there, so school, not schools are it,
1: like are like the worst combination of like an enterprise and consumer. They're like consumers, and they don't want to spend any money, but they're enterprises, and that they're big bureaucracies that can't make a decision. Um, they're kind of Absolutely. a nightmare selling to the schools. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, just, uh, Justin, who's you know producing this show, he's not on actually on the interview. I mean that his his company sells to uh, just Kate. I don't know it's like maybe middle school, high school type, and and that's an ongoing problem that they have. And I've a company that I've invested in that that does um, uh, it's sort of like a coding club type of thing. It's not online. Uh, it's not like a Code Avengers thing. It's more like a um, I don't know. It's actual retail locations and the same thing. that You know, when the friend of mine who started it started out on it. I mean, it, it, there was a lot of discussion with the schools and getting into schools and stuff, but they just don't have any money and they don't have a lot of expertise. And it's just kind of a, it's just a pain. It's just sort of like a, it's a red herring that people chase after all the time. And then, and then it's not until like they almost run out of money. They realize that they shouldn't really be selling to schools because they don't have any money. And if they do have money, they just take forever to make a decision.
0: That's right. So, I mean, schools are okay as a side thing, as long as you're not expecting or counting on making a whole lot of money from it. Now, I mean, as I've sort of indicated in the beginning and, and even now my motivation was not to make a whole ton of money out of this. So I was just, you know, interested in fun and effective uh, fun and effective learning. So, um, so yeah, so initially, and and even now I think 80% of our user base is in schools. So we have several thousand schools that, that use it and, and we offer basically our level one courses for free to schools. Um, and in the hope, I guess that they'll, they'll, some percentage will go on and, and use the level two stuff. So at this stage, yeah, 80% of our user base is from schools, 20% of our user base is outside schools. But in terms of revenue, it's flipped the other way. 20% of our revenue comes from schools and 80% of it comes from, um, you know, independent online learners.
1: That's interesting. You know, um, you know, in terms of demographic, at least age, I mean, um, like I said, my son Colby's doing He's only 10. And one thing I was kind of hoping for um, in terms of either using Code Academy or Code Avengers is that he'd be able to do it all by himself. Because yes. the whole reason that he was going to start doing it was that he needed something to do at school because he had sort of finished the math curriculum that they were all doing. And the teacher's like, I need to have him do something, you know. So, and obviously, I'm not going to be at a school and standing over his shoulder, you know, pointing out that he missed a semicolon or something. So, um, you know, so he's been doing it, and he actually does a little bit at home. Actually, I, I have this new sort of, uh, I don't know, this uh, requirement that if he's going to spend, you know, a bunch of time playing video games, that he's got to spend at least a half hour doing something productive, either Code Avengers or something else. <laughs> and awesome. he'll do... Yeah, yeah, that's my new thing. It's like, hey, if you wanna go play video games for two or three hours on a Saturday like do do uh do two lessons. I'll take about a half hour, you know? And he doesn't mind it at all. He's like, okay, fine. And uh and but what I'm getting at is that he's had no help from me. You know, he's ten, Kobe's ten years old and he's done the first twenty or so lessons completely by himself. No problem. And when I asked him how it went, he's like, Yeah, there's no problem. You know, I mean I think he said the the one one lesson on null value, he found a little frustrating right. for some reason, but he, he, he got it working, you know, Cool. but he's 10, you know, you're aiming it for high school. So it seems to me that, you know, obviously while well, you're aiming at high school, you could, you could clearly, you know, expect junior high and younger using it. I mean, what's, do you have any numbers yeah. on, on the younger kids and what percentage or, or how young it goes?
0: Yeah. So initially, as I said, we're aligning it with this New Zealand, New New Zealand high school curriculum, oh. which started at age uh, 15. And so our level one courses is, were targeted at 15 year olds. But then what I found was in the UK and even in the US, we had a lot of schools wanting to use it with 12 year olds and, and 11 year olds. And so I had to kind of change my thinking and try and simplify the instructions further so that, you know, a 10 year old or even a nine year old with a, You know, with the reading ability of a 12 year old would have no problem, would have no problem. Mm -hmm. The other demographic that I think, or or the other benefit of writing the instructions with the reading age of a 12 year old in mind, was it made the lessons a lot more accessible for for people whose second language was English. So we have a lot of people from all over Europe, um, Asia, whose basically their English reading age is about
1: that of a 12 year old. So, do you do any specific testing with uh, beta testing with the younger kids um, right out of the gate before you before you publish them live?
0: Yeah, I mean, in a way, that's one of the important uh, parts of the, part run, of the camps that we run. Camps that we run is mm-hmm. testing it's new testing material. New material. So, I mean, so the initial reason for, initial doing, reason the for one, doing the camps was one to, to test new material. Two. Two. Uh, so, yeah, we we run these code camps. And as part of the camps, we're testing new material, and so that they're essentially beta testing opportunities. but then there're also obviously opportunities for us to, to generate some revenue and probably more importantly to actually um, teach kids things that you know are harder to teach via a solely online environment.
1: You know you have what like th- three levels with JavaScript and three levels with HTML CSS currently? Yes. How, how how much uh, further are you going to take it are you going to go and do more advanced courses uh, along those lines so like JavaScript we'll 4 and 5 or whatever or are you going to go broader and start doing like you know python or rails or things like that
0: yeah so we do have plans for python so in the senior coding uh, particularly in in the UK and even here in New Zealand python has sort of become the language that that most of the senior schools are using. So if we want to really dominate the school's market, now here in New Zealand we have over 50% of New Zealand high schools that are using Code Avengers, um, but they're not using it right across the board in all their levels because they're doing Python. So Python something that's coming soon. But in addition to that, we're, we're still going a lot deeper on the web development. So it's still very much introductory web development. We're not covering anything server-side. Um we actually don't have DOM manipulation in those three web courses. So that's the next web course that we're uh, developing. Um, and then, you know, there's some more advanced CSS courses we're going to do, things like LESS and SAS, you know, which we're, we're not covering yet. So, and, and then we'll sort of, you know, we've got a bit of a roadmap mapped out for the next 12 months. And then we'll decide, I guess, after that where where things are heading.
1: Are, are you going to be like releasing something like every month or two is how 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 aggressive you guys going to be with that
0: yeah i mean we've got courses planned to come out in about in about two months um but i guess the other thing the other thing that will determine how how quickly we're able to release things is is how much time and energy we're putting into these code camps because i'm also quite keen to run at least a dozen of those um next year and they do take up a bit of time um, take time away from developing courses. So it'll, it'll kind of depend on that. And it's all, also depends on how quickly we can get some others on board. So we have a, a couple of people working part time for us that are going to be developing courses, but if we can bring them on board full time, obviously that's going to speed up the, the process of developing courses.
1: So, so that, that, that leads into uh, my next line of questioning, which is about the business side. Um, so is all of this completely bootstrapped or have you uh, gotten any kind of investment?
0: Yeah, so at, at the moment it's completely bootstrapped. I haven't, I've, I've kept my word to my wife and, and haven't put any money in, um, but it did mean for the first, you know, for the first 18 months, I, I think I paid myself like $2,000 because that, that was what was left over at the end of the year. But, you know, I mean, now I'm able to pay myself decent income at least until I bring on another full-time person at the moment. There's only two of us working full-time um, and we're bringing on someone next month on January. And then we have others who come at who we rope in um, for the camps. So, yeah, I mean, essentially it's, it's bootstrapped, but, you know, investment is something um, that could be quite critical you know, if we're really want to wanting to expand rapidly, but at this stage, I'm still sort of umming and ahring about the pros and cons there.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, that's a very complex subject, and it really is uh, con- contextual. You know, I mean, what works for one company may not work for another. But mm. it seems like you're doing a great job already. I mean, so you're going a little slower, but the one thing that's it's really good is that you're getting getting it right. You know, you're you created a product that works you're getting courses out your people are liking it they're learning and it sounds like you're bringing revenue if you're if you're able to actually pay yourself and maybe yeah. even be on the cusp of paying and two people be able to you know on the cusp of paying more people then it sounds like that you actually have a, a business and now you know and if you're in that kind of situation I think I can't I, I'm blanking on the guy's name but he's uh, one of the most prolific angel investors in um in the Bay Area, I'm just like on his name, but he would always say he's like, the best kind of business is a business that doesn't need any investment at all. And it sounds like you guys are almost there. I mean, could you see yourself? Um, I mean, let's say there was no investment for a reason. I mean, do you think you would be able to grow the company and keep going forward over the next few years anyway?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we could. Um, so I mean, at the moment, we're looking at around $200,000 revenue for the, for the 12-month period. And, you know, we don't have a ton of expenses. I mean, when you're working at home, things are cheap. So, and I think we could triple that next year um, with with the plans we currently have to with, to bring on a, a couple more people full time. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's about whether you want to grow any, whether you want to try and grow any faster than that and whether, you know, there's competitors that that are going to make that. Difficult, more well-resourced competitors, but I mean, at this stage, I think with the plans we've got, that's that's pretty realistic.
1: Well, you know what's really interesting is Code Academy, right? So they brought they raised a ton of money, didn't they? And they got a ton of press. Yeah, and so they were twelve, everywhere all twelve million. Yeah, and and they were yeah. everywhere. Like you couldn't you couldn't turn on a web browser without reading a story in the New York Times or something, or in TechCrunch or wherever about Code Academy. But despite that. Um, you know, I don't. I mean, I don't know what their financials are, are but I, you you don't hear about them as much anymore. Like after the initial big push, but also, like you said, like they didn't really solve some some of their fundamental problems uh, of of their of their business. I mean, um, you know, what's a really interesting thing is that when you raise money, it kind of locks in kind of what you're doing because because then you're like, okay, now we're just going to scale this. We're just going to go really big with it, yeah. And you can't really fix it as easily. Whereas you're at the scale where you're like, okay you know, we just kind of can, you know, we're small, we can kind of do what we want or do what we need to do. If you're, if you're all of a sudden like unhappy with a course, you can revamp it, cut it in two, add to it, whatever. But the bigger you get, the harder it is. Um, so I'd be curious what your thought is on that. Yeah. I mean, you know, looking at Codecata, <laughs> what Code they've been able to do and not do, I mean, you know, what, what kind of lessons do you take from them?
0: Right. I mean, let's just say, so I don't know if you're familiar with Treehouse. Uh, are you familiar yeah, with Treehouse? Was,
1: uh, yeah, What um, and what's the guy's founder's name? I'm blanking on his name. Um, he's really well-known. Uh, do you remember his? Brian Carson, is it? Carson. Brian Carson, right. Carsonified. He's been big in the web sort of space yes. for a long time. Um, and they went bankrupt, right? Are they shut down?
0: No, no, no. No, they're doing well. Right? They're doing really well.
1: Oh, they are doing well. Okay. I mean, yeah. So well, what what happened with them? What's their story? So, So, yeah,
0: I mean, they... <laughs> they were, I guess, launching off some past web businesses. And so they, they were making money right from the get go. So they provide interactive online courses, um, covering similar topics, but they have a larger team and, and a large number of courses. Now they have also taken funding, but they charged right from day one and were making money right from day one where code Academy, even now, they still aren't actually making money. Um, their courses are completely free. um, and the last articles I read, they're still, you know, they haven't got sort of monetization at, at the top of their list yet. Unless I would much rather be in the position of of Treehouse than than Codecademy. So, Codecademy also tried to they crowdsourced all their lesson material originally. So they just had random volunteers around their uh, around the world develop their lesson material for them, which I don't think was the best way to go. Um, in the end, if people are developing something for free, they're not going to put the time and energy into it to make it really high quality. And so while Code Academy has improved the quality of their courses by hiring people to basically refine and rewrite the courses, um, yeah, I just, I just, I never thought that was, was the best approach to take. And so, I mean, with, with Code Avengers, um, for the first two years, it was just me developing the course material, and we've got more hours of course material than. Code Academy, who's been working on it longer with $12 million funding and a team of 20. So,
1: you know, a company that I was thinking of was Learn Street. I think oh, they Learn were. Uh, I know yeah. Learn Street well. So they sh- they shut down, right? That's right. So, I mean, Learn Street's another one. So they actually,
0: when I first met their team, they were like wanting to hire me because, um, you know, obviously they, my courses were way better than theirs. So that, they had a lot less funding. They only had sort of $1 to $2 million funding. And so they hired uh, like second and third year university students as interns to develop their course material. And so basically it was, well, it wasn't as good as Code Academies. Um And so they really struggled to get any traction just because the quality of their courses was not really that great. And so, yeah, they ran out of money and that was the end of them. But they also, I mean, when I met with their CEO to discuss the possibility of, of me working for them, um, basically no one at their team really cared about education at all. They were just like, oh, yeah, we're developing a Code Academy copycat. And they had no original, really original ideas. It was just copying Code Academy. And so, I mean, I wasn't the slightest bit interested in, in working for a team with that sort of motivation and vision.
1: Yeah, you know, it's kind of nice when you hear that, that like clones, ten, you know, about how clones tend to fail, because it is frustrating when someone just copies Some You can tell it's just a copycat. And and I, I, I can't I've read some articles by some, you know, I don't know if it's uh, Fred Wilson or Jason Calacanis or, yeah. you know, some of these sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, web type of, you know, thought leaders or whatever. And they're, one of them made this really good point of just about how like you know when you start out just kind of copying somebody else it's really hard to get your momentum of of creativity going you know it's like you know you you just kind of get yourself in this mold that you're just you're sort of caught in this gravitational field of whatever this other company's doing and you don't <clears throat> really understand why they're doing what they're doing it's just sort of this you know, cargo cult mentality they did this therefore we do that but you really understand why they're doing it and because you don't really understand why and you haven't done the hard thinking underneath it you're really not doing things right and the other thing too which is i and i see is when people have this sort of cynical view of things they don't tend to do as good of a job and they tend to fail which is kind of what they deserve anyway you know it's like you know it's uh it's it's uh i don't know i i just find that sort of like that kind of karma you know as as opposed to people who are trying to do a good job like you're like hey you know, I mean, your wife is probably like, hey, you know, you put a lot of time into this. It'd be nice if we can make a little bit of money off it, you know? And, yeah. But your primary thing you're thinking about is like, you know, like, damn it, I want to do this right. This needs to get solved right. I want to make great courses and, like, I'm going to figure this out. And that's a whole different that, approach, right? That,
0: exactly. And, um, yeah, I mean, the, the first time I, I spoke to someone from from Learn Street, I mean, I, I could pretty much guarantee they were going. Nowhere, unless some completely new CEO came on with a completely different philosophy. And yeah, sure enough, it did, didn't take long.
1: So, so let's talk a little bit about your uh, your your pricing and charging. I mean, that's always a really dicey step for most startups. They're, they're always very <laughs> nervous about when they can start charging, you know, and you know, is it good enough? You know, can I start charging people or should we just build, do we just want to get a lot of people using it first? And at what, at what point do you sort of turn that on and do you do a part of it? I mean, or do we, you know, and you're, you're always worried like if you charge too much, nobody's going to use it. If you charge too little, then nobody's going to take it seriously and it's not going to be enough money anyway. I mean, what was sort of your thought process and, and what did, what was your sort of, I don't know, did you run a bunch of experiments and I mean, what, what did you do <sighs>
0: Right. Yeah. So as I sort of mentioned earlier, it got to the 18 month period and it was like, okay, I need to decide whether I'm going to try and make some money out of this or go and get a full time job. And it's like, well, obviously I'm going to try and make some money from it. So at that stage I had the level one and the level two JavaScript course. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to launch the level uh, two JavaScript course have a couple of weeks for people to try it out and get a bit of feedback and fix some of the bugs. And then I'm going to chuck a paywall up um, in front of that level two JavaScript course. And if I get a decent amount of payments, um, then I'll continue. You know, if, if no one wants to pay for it um, in that first you know, couple of weeks, well, then I don't think I can really afford to continue on with this. So. Um, yeah, so I, you know, a couple of weeks into launch of level two JavaScript, chucked that paywall up. I think I charged like $19 or something, um, initially. And thankfully, you know, the, the morning after I, I chucked the paywall up, a couple of people had, had purchased it. And, um, I think, yeah, the following day there was sort of one or two purchases and it kind of trickled along, but I mean, very quickly, I realized that. We just didn't have enough traffic to make um, enough money for me to well bring on another person. Let alone, you know, we we're making just enough money to I guess pay myself a salary, but that wasn't going to grow the company. So, uh, after about how many months? Maybe six months. I then started charging for our level one courses. Now, the level one course, uh, the level one JavaScript course, would take about ten hours plus to to finish, and so. Um, I changed it so that we only gave the first quarter of that level one JavaScript course for free. And then at at present, we're charging now $24 for the rest of that course. And then when they get to level two, it's $39. And, you know, pretty much once we started charging for level one, we were now making enough money to, to pay for, for two full-time employees. But then, you know, we're doing other things on top of that, running teacher training and and code camps, which which generated revenue to you know pay um, graphic designers. We've translated our courses into a bunch of different languages now, and so we've paid you know people to translate those courses, and we're about to to launch those soon. Um, so yeah, we've we've done a f- you know a few experiments, but. In the end, when you've got limited resources, you've got, you know, limited time to experiment too much. And, and the thing I really want to focus my time on is the development of of the quality course materials. So I really need to get someone else on board to, to focus on that area.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll bet you could probably charge more for, like, the more advanced stuff. Or, like, let's say you came with a Node.js course. You know, maybe that's, like, JavaScript yeah. level 6 or yeah. something like that. Because at that point... You're 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 getting much more closer to people who are doing it seriously for a job, maybe or um, or whatever. or they just have a lot vested in it? And so you charge yeah. forty nine dollars yeah. or seventy nine dollars or something. And you know, um, I could easily see that. I mean, I can tell you from my experience. You know, my Colby walks in here and he's like, "Dad, I need I need your credit card." <laughs> I'm like what for? And he's like, "I just finished the first ten lessons of uh, Code Avengers. You gotta you gotta." I got to buy the next. And so, I mean, for me, it wasn't even a thought, right? Like, right. Like, absolutely. $24, whatever. I mean, if it had been $49 or something, I would have done it. I mean, or even yeah. probably more. I mean, maybe yeah. maybe I'm less sensitive to that than some people and maybe I have more of an interest in, in my son learning this than other people, which I think is probably true. But it was a great way to do it because, you know, once he'd already invested time into it and, and had enjoyed it and had it had been successful, I mean, you know, it's that sort of, you know, I guess there's a sort of foot in the door technique. I mean, it worked perfectly. It worked perfectly on me. Mm. I can tell you that.
0: Yeah. Now, now we have a we have a variety of of users in terms of our online users. Obviously, there's there's kids using it, and so they're having to convince their parents to pay. Um, and that we find with the kids, it's sort of yeah. There's half of them come from I guess well-to-do upper upper middle class, and for most of them, it's it's a piece of cake to get the credit card. But for the other half, it's where money's not so. Freely available, you know. It usually takes a bit of convincing. Um, they really have to show their dedication to their parents before the parents will fork out any money. Then, I mean, even with our adult learners, I mean, we have a lot of learners in you know countries like India and you know all over Africa. And you know, I'm loath to put up the price. I mean, already it's it's unattainable for half of our our users in India, and I'll often you know, give discounts or just give courses away to free to people who I know, you know, aren't going to be able to pay for it. Um, but you know, yes, I, I, because my initial motivation, I guess for doing it was enabling people in those countries to be able to, you know, have the type of education that I was able to get in a country like New Zealand, you know, from university and to make the education more accessible to those types of people. I don't really want to, up the prices any higher if i can at all avoid it um but we, we do have other things we're exploring we've, we've got some partnerships with um some groups in the us to actually run courses for entrepreneurs which will be a bit more upmarket, and they'll incorporate both the online instruction as well as a face-to-face teaching and and that's you know something where we can charge people who can afford it more
1: yes yeah see, i think you're your values are, are in the right place. And I think that's probably serving you well. You're not trying to squeeze out every dime. You know, your, your, your focus is on creating the best educational experience possible and for as many people to use it and succeed with it as possible while being able to build a business, you know? And like, when you do things the right way and for the right reasons, it's like you kind of have the wind at your back, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's, yeah. you know, a lot of companies miss that point. They're just so mercenary about it. Um, that they don't even think they don't, they don't think about that as much, and it sounds like you're whether you're thinking about that actively or it's just kind of who you are, and that's just how you're doing it. Until you step back and realize, oh yeah, well that's just the yeah, part, yeah. Probably somewhat responsible for why you're succeeding.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean I I think so. No, I think we could definitely be making <laughs> more revenue doing things a different way, but and that's I think one of the main reasons I'm reluctant to go after investments. So I mean we do have a bunch of friends and you know some rich friends who are are interested in investing and I'd probably be happier taking money off them than than other outsiders who might you know really force us to change the direction um of the company because I just really don't want to do that and as we mentioned earlier the other big reason is is just I like the freedom and flexibility to to chase opportunities that that seem interesting um from the you know, perspective of, of developing quality education.
1: Yeah. So I, I, I would just, uh, this is what we sometimes call the unsolicited advice part of the show. <laughs> so yes. I, just to throw yes. this at you, but I would, what you're doing in terms of just being very conscious about maintaining control of it and doing it the way you want. I mean, so, yeah. the, and I mentioned that I invested in this code club uh, company that a buddy of mine is, is doing. And, you know, he took some money from me and you know, I bought a minority share in it when he needed it. And but what's really nice about it is I is when you take it from like a friend who's generally supportive of you and what you're really trying to do, it it makes things really easy. So when he calls me up and says, you know, he wants to do X, Y, and Z, I'm I'm generally like, Okay, man, like I'm investing in you. I want you to succeed. At the end of yeah. the day, I'm your friend. You know, if I disagree about like one or two strategic things, like whatever, like I don't know for sure that my, I what I'm suggesting is it work better than what you're suggesting, and you know what the hell. And if you want to build, you know, into a lifestyle business where I make a, you know, a modest return on my money, that's fine too, because it's still better than the stock market. And yeah. if you want to grow the hell out of it and make some big, then great too. Like I, I made peace with that. Like I'm putting the money into it, and so you know, and he can and he can just call me up and ask for advice and brainstorm about stuff without any pressure. And I don't have any real control and I'm not going to play hardball with them. Like some you know, professional investors you know, might have a tendency to do. And I don't know that's a really nice way to go. So if you could find some <laughs> friends who have a little bit of money and are like, you know, Hey Michael, here's, you know, hundred grand or whatever. Yeah. You know, like yeah. go for it. I'd be awesome if you turn this into a million dollars five years from now, but if you only turn it to 150, to $200,000, I can live with that. You know, like, yeah, that's a really nice position yeah. to be in, you know?
0: Yes, I, I do have a few of those people who have basically been, I guess, advisors for me right from day one that I realized I was going to try and turn it into a business. You know, one of the first things I did was, okay, who do I know that's done this sort of thing before that, you know, is within my my circle of friends and family. And so, yeah, I've, I've, I've had a lot of support from some of those sorts of people. And I've said, hey, when you're ready, you know, we're, we're keen to, to chuck some money at you. So that's certainly where we'll start.
1: Yeah. I, I think that's a really good place to look because, you know, raising money actually, you know, it seems like these companies go and raise money, even angel money, and it sounds like this sort of like straightforward function, like, oh, we went, we had some meetings and all of a sudden we had one point five million. Like it really actually when <laughs> I hear talking to people in reality, it takes quite a bit of work and quite a bit of time. So you could end up spending spending three to six months of time chasing after capital and not really working on your company and having a lot of stressful and annoying conversations with investors and lawyers and stuff and then you finally get it closed and now you have these people on your back who you know they may you know at least on the surface seem to be really supportive what you're doing but at the end of the day they're representing limited partners who need a return on their money and that's that's going to be really driving the decisions. so i don't know if you can get away with just taking some friends and family money and grow with that that would seem like that'd be really nice (laughs) Nice yeah yeah over the last
0: couple of months, we've been discussing all these issues, you know, quite a bit. And, and I was talking to my wife, um, last month and I was saying, okay, you know, we're able to pay myself a decent salary. You know, we don't need to, you know, what would happen if we decided not to grow this beyond what it's currently doing? Um, um, and and in the end, and it's the like, end well, end if it's if it's we had, had a lot of money, what would we do money? with it? What what I asked her, what you know, what what, what she would she want to do with a whole lot of money? She Said, well, want I'd want, want a nice house, and I want, want to do some travel.
1: Yeah, that's the answer you get from most wives, I think. When you have when you have family, they're like, I want a house. Yeah, and so I was like, well,
0: we actually just bought a second house, and it's it's a nice new home. Now it's not as big as she'd want, but you know, I'm like, well, we've got two houses, so we've we've kind of solved that one already. And okay, you want to do some travel? Where do you want to go? And so she's half Chinese. So she's like, okay, I want to go to China. I'm like, okay, well, let's go to China. So last month we went to Hungary because my, my family's in Hungary and we went to China and I contacted some of our schools over there using Code Avengers and said, hey, would you like us to come run a camp, um, a code camp at your school? And they were you know, very happy to, to have us do that. So we spent three weeks traveling. We earned quite a decent amount of revenue. Um, and my wife and I got, you know, free holidays. And so, you know, we're, even though we're not making loads of money, we're able to do all the things that we would do if we did have loads of money, um, on the company and, you know, we're not, we're not being taxed for this holiday. So that's, that's a nice thing.
1: That's great. That's a really great way to travel. I always like traveling when I have sort of something to do aside from just yeah. going out to eat and sightseeing. Cause that gets, I don't know, for me, that gets a little boring pretty. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah. we have people to meet and things to do for part of the day. And then, you know, the next part of the day we'll go and do some sightseeing or go whatever. And I don't know, that just makes it a little more fun. Um, so that's kind of, a, I don't know for that's me, the, that sounds like a that's like an ideal thing to do. You'd be like, Hey sweetheart, where do you want to travel? She's like, Oh, I'm going to go to Italy. Okay. Let's go do a good camp in Italy.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's the beauty of having schools literally in every country of the world using our courses, you know, there's no shortage of people to, to contact if, if we want to go to a country. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure we could we could set something up now. Uh, now the benefit of the last trip, so my wife actually did a bit of work at the camps just so we could, you know, write it off as a, a tax-deductible expense. But it was it was great for her to actually see the camps in action and I think quite motivating for her to see what we were doing and the difference that we were making in, in the lives of these kids in terms of motivating and exciting them about, you know, tech, um, tech stuff. And so I, I think she's actually been a little bit more supportive since we got backers as, as well. So that's that was a nice side benefit.
1: That's yeah. great. Yeah. I could see, you know, you get there and you see people learning, you see these kids learning and it's hard to not to get kind of a high off of that. You know, it's 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 one thing to lo- think about it in the abstract. It's another thing to actually see the kid learn or or whatever. I mean, that I yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, what? Um, oh, so <laughs> my my wife just handed me a list of questions from my ten year old. <laughs> okay, <laughs> who's uh, who's your who's a user? So I'll I'll ask you a few of those. Um, but before I get to that, let's see. I wanted to ask you the first. Thing I want to ask you is how many users do you have? Um, because you said you're they're all over the world. I don't know if you actually the uh, kind of a general number? I mean, how, what's like, right. I'm sorry. So I actually muted my, actually, station. actually muted my microphone. So let me just re ask that again and we'll have to cut that out. But what's, what's the, uh, I mean, how many users do you have worldwide do you think roughly? Yeah.
0: So total number of signups is like somewhere between like 220, 250,000 signups. Now I'm not, I am not. don't sort of follow too closely how many active users, but you know, on a daily basis we're having sort of 6,000 uh, visits to the site.
1: Cool. So that's, that's, a, that's actually a good number. Do you have, um, do you have any sort of metric to like how many sort of active users do you have as opposed to people who just uh, signed up, looked around, and never came back?
0: Yeah, that's, so we also have a whole ton of users who actually, because you can do the courses without signing up, so we have a lot of users who will do a few lessons and not sign up. And, and never come back. So that number is actually probably larger than, than the 250,000. Um, I, I would have to investigate a little more closely. So as I said before, we have about 80% of our users that are from schools. Now, some of these schools, they'll use Code Avengers for maybe two weeks in the year, and then they'll use it again the following year for two weeks. So, yeah. So I would, it would actually require a bit of work to figure out you know, what sort of constitutes active user base. <laughs> actually having 80% of our users being from the schools has actually complicated quite a few things with regards to, I guess, digital marketing efforts and really figuring out whether changes we're making are, are having effects on the, the online learners because it's actually been pretty hard to, to isolate the school users from the other users because even putting up a dialogue box and saying like are you using code avengers at a school you'll probably get like maybe 30 percent of the students who click no even though they're students just because they're kids and they just sort of randomly pick a a button so yeah that's that's proved quite problematic for us
1: hold on just hold on just one second i'm actually going to bring my son colby in here i'll have him ask a few of these questions himself i'll I'll stand on the on the line of course but that might be kind of okay. fun to just hear him ask it one sec hey kobe how's it going hi michael <laughs> okay read off, uh, hi <laughs> why don't you read off uh some of your questions one of your questions for him um how how old are you how
0: old am i good questions oh, i I'm, I'm 29.
1: Hey. 29. So, he's, uh, so he's, he's off to a good start here. Uh, only 29, and he's had a business for what? How long has this been? Three years now that you started That's it? That's right. Yeah, That's three right. years. Okay. Three years. Yeah, so you have to wait till you're, you're old and gray. So here's the next question. We're going we to do the next question. How long did you t- did it take to build the website?
0: Yeah, so it, it took so six, months, it took before six months before I launched the first, launched version, the of the first version of the website. But then I've been working <laughs> yeah. on it nonstop since it then nonstop for another two and a half then. years.
1: years. <laughs> so let's let, let Kobe, I'm gonna so want to find a, a question that I haven't already asked, because somebody's already asked. So how did uh, you how, how, how once you ask this question right here? How many hours a day did you spend on the website? In terms of how many he's basically what he means how many days did it did you yeah, how many hours a day did you work on the site? Yeah, that was his question.
0: Good question. Um, typically uh, Somewhere between 10 and between 14 10 hours 10 and a day, days, days,
1: days, five to six days a week. Six <laughs> days a week. Wow. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. And how about this last question? Why don't you just ask this last question? Did you ever think a 10-year-old would be using your site?
0: I did, actually. So did. one of my initial testers was my seven-year-old brother. Seven-year-old brother. So he completed so the Level completed one, the JavaScript JavaScript 1 JavaScript course as a seven-year-old, but a he needed a little bit of help he from his um. Help from from one of my other brothers. One of my other brothers.
1: Yeah. Well, cool. Well, um, th- thanks for uh, thanks for answering that call. Thanks, Colby, for uh, uh, Jumping in. Thanks, thanks Colby. So uh, That so was an experiment. It's the first time I ever had him on the show, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> that comes across. But um, yeah. So uh, you know, I'd actually like to ask a little bit about the tech stack. Um, you know, what did you what did what languages? Did you use uh, what? Uh, I don't know, back end, I mean, all that kind of stuff. What, what was sort of the, would you start with? How'd you evolve it? That kind of stuff.
0: Right. Uh, right. Yeah, and it's, it's certainly yeah. evolving. So initially, Are, I, used this, I used Java, Java. on the Java. back end. Back end. Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind, this was keep only really this. the second web application I'd ever created. The first was um, the software I built for my PhD. And so with my PhD software, I was using a bunch of open source uh, natural language processing Java libraries. So that was the main reason for choosing Java there. Um, and basically I decided to stick with Java uh, one, because I was keen on using Google app engine because of the, the sizable free quotas um, and to Google app engine supported Java. So it seemed like a, a logical choice. Um, and yeah, on the front end, I, wasn't I guess I didn't really know about any frameworks other than using, you know, jQuery. Um, it was just, you know, a mishmash mish, of, of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And um, I, I guess also because I never really planned on this being some, well, having anywhere near the number of users that it does now, um, I guess I didn't put a lot of effort up front into getting the whole structure set up for easy maintenance. And so that's something that's kind of come later as I've, you know, brought on others to work with me full-time and part-time I've had to sort of tidy up various areas of the code so that they could, um, they could, you know, work on them now in terms of our course development. So we've actually developed online editors. So we've developed our own, our own editor, uh, for developing the course material. Um, we also have our, an online IDE built into Code Avengers, which uh, is both used by our, our users to develop, I guess, prototype uh, applications. And we also use it at our code camps uh, when the students build their own projects. And so I actually do a whole lot of uh, development inside of the Code Avengers um, IDE when I'm, I'm developing new things. Uh, so I guess I'm the number one uh, beta tester uh, myself and and my uh, partner are the main beta beta testers for that.
1: Yeah, I actually built a, a code editor myself, a browser code editor for a, um, an after-school programming program that I ran for uh, a couple years. And right. that was really tricky stuff to get that right. Um, I remember one of the things that was probably the trickiest was that if you wanted to create a prompt or like almost like a command line um, program to where there, you know, the, 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 program blocks until you, you enter uh, information and you didn't want it to have to be a, a, a sort of a, um, a an actual browser prompt. Um, you actually had to block. And the way I did that is I would spin off a worker thread and that would, uh, I'm trying to remember, would kind of, open a connection to a, a Node.js server, which would then hold it open and was the sort of it was basically done through the server side stuff. I mean how 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 did you did you have to do anything like that yourself?
0: No, so so my introductory JavaScript courses actually use prompts the, the browser alerts and prompts for that exact reason. Um because yeah you don't want to be having to teach callbacks in your you know first and second lessons. So yeah, I just, I just kept it simple and stuck with that. But the, the, the most difficult thing. So with, um, what one of the key bits of functionality of my, of our code Avengers IDE is the live updates So as you editing the you know, the JavaScript and the HTML and the CSS, you've got an output window that, that updates on the fly. Um, and getting that working reliably across, Browsers. There was a few sort of tricky bits and pieces.
1: Is this going back and forth to the server, or is this just purely client side?
0: i no. This is this is just client side, and then it will, you know, every now and then it'll save it and deploy your pages um, to the web and save them on the server.
1: Right. Okay. That's Yeah. Well, it's you know, like I say, it's really well done. Um. So let's just switch gears a bit. Was one other major thing I'd like to ask you about, which is the marketing. I mean, how did you initially get traction, and how have you built up awareness?
0: Good question. So, I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, I had well, I had very little business background. My my only experience, I guess, with marketing on the web was at high school, I, I'm a sports fanatic and and one of the sports I played was cricket. And so in high school, I developed a cricket scoring system because all the decent ones on the web, you know, cost at least $100 and I didn't want to spend $100. So I was like, I'll build my own. Um, and I'd put a little bit of effort into getting this free cricket scoreboard, you know, downloaded by as many people as I could. And so I'd had about a hundred thousand downloads over the period of a couple of years. So that was sort of my only marketing experience. Now, you know, 10 years later I'd I'd built code Avengers, um, and it came time to launch and I'd listened to all these stories about all these startups, you know, coming out of Y Combinator and, um, you know, other Silicon Valley based startups and how they got, you know, massive user numbers from doing, you know, seemingly very simple things. Um, and yeah, to begin with, I mean, I, you know, spammed all my Facebook friends and got my siblings to do the same. And that generated, you know, 100, 100 maybe 1,000 Facebook likes over the period of a month. Um, and we started getting little bits and pieces of traction. And then it was basically, and com- lots of commenting on you know every single post about Codecademy, um, and and actually from that I, I had people contact me who said, hey, we'd like to help you out with the marketing, and they sort of taught me a few things and and did a few things for me, and it just you know very slowly um, built up in terms of online traction, and then I guess along the way just various opportunities came, um, so probably the. The biggest of those are you—you probably heard of the initiative uh, from Code.org, Hour of Code. Yeah, yeah, of
1: course, right. So that—so the, did they help promote you guys?
0: Yes, yeah, so, I mean that—that that was an example of something. You know, Code.org launched this site, um, which basically listed a bunch of online resources. Uh, now, I found out about the launch um, the same time as everyone else <laughs> when it launched, and and we weren't on the page. Um, but a whole bunch of our competitors were including learn Street, And so I contacted the guy to say, Hey, how come, why not us? And he's like, well, you don't have any venture funding. And I'm like, but some of these other sites you're listing are rubbish. And well, in the case of learn street, don't care about education. Um, and so after a bit of persistence, uh, while I missed out on that, on that big spike of traffic, I I was able to get our site listed on code.org. And so little things like that. You know, from code.org, we were getting sort of 400, 500 visitors a day, um, new visitors a day. Uh, And then with the Hour of Code thing they launched last year, you know, we got listed as one of the resources for Hour of Code, you know, and so that generated a big spike of traffic. And along the way, there's just been lots of little things that we've done that have just, I guess, helped it slowly grow and gain momentum um, outside of schools. Inside of schools, we actually, uh, so here in New Zealand, I, I ran training, uh, what's called professional develop sessions, professional development sessions for high school teachers. And so basically they'd pay me t- for me to teach them a bit of coding and market my product at them. So that was that was good. You know, when you're a young company, needing revenue to be paid to do your marketing is, is awesome. Um, and then I also, you know, wrote articles for, teacher magazines in the US and the UK and attended conferences in those com- uh, countries. And that helps generate awareness in the schools and, and you know, get up, helped us get to the, the few thousand schools that we now have using Code Avengers.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think you've said it really well, which is that it's lots of little things. And every time that I've talked to somebody who's, you know, and whether it's terms of marketing or even a lot of things. And when it comes to success, you say, like, well, what did you do? They're like, I did a lot of stuff. You know, I tried (laughs) a lot of things and I tried them different ways and at different times. And it was like you said, you know, it just, after a while, if you keep trying things, um, you sort of leave no stone unturned. Eventually you just kind of get enough momentum. It's you build up enough mass. It's kind of like, you know, how do you make a lot of money? Well, if you just, kind of make a little money here and there and you keep putting it into a bank account and then the interest eventually the interest that it starts to earn on its own is pretty big. And so you just, you know, whenever you get $50 or $100, you put it in the bank, then like, oh, wow, you know, I got a lot of money in that account.
0: That's right. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. that's what I did. Basically, as a kid, I was an obsessive, kid, was an obsessive saver and I saved every penny, penny, I penny I earned and happened to marry someone who had, you know, kind of done the same thing. And so between the two of us, we were able to be in a financial position where I could work on Code Avengers for, you know, a couple of years without earning any income in it, and we weren't actually spending any of our savings. So, um, yeah, the the same, I guess, level of of discipline and and dedication with the startup has sort of helped it grow. And I and I think what I found is, I mean, every time I'd start getting discouraged because things weren't growing as as fast as I hoped, you know, an, an opportunity would come along that you know, help things grow. And just by planting all those seeds, you know, I mean, you don't know which things are going to pay off, but things just start coming along. Um, You know, like a month, a a month ago, it was uh, Rovio who, you know, created Angry Birds contacted us and wanted to use our course and some promotion they were doing, you know, And, and it didn't start off with companies like Rovio contacting you, you know, it was much smaller crowds, but you know, it just sort of slowly grows and, and the opportunities get bigger and better.
1: Yeah, that's, say, you know, I think that's a great lesson for, for just pretty much anybody trying to do almost anything is <laughs> persistence yeah. and just trying yeah. lots of things. So, um, I just have a couple more questions. I know we're kind of probably getting towards, you know, the end of, uh, the interview, but, um, the, 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 the first question I have is, so I know you're finishing up your PhD uh, how how is that going? I mean, are you able to spend enough time to finish it up and you know, how much longer is that going to take you?
0: Uh, it's, it's been a bit of a nightmare. So I was almost finished two years ago. Um, and it's, it's been yeah very slow going the past two years, but I, yeah, I'm like, I need a couple of weeks basically to finish it. And so over the next six weeks, I do have a couple of weeks that I can dedicate to it before we're sort of on to our next set of code camps in January. Um, and there's a bit of preparation that has to go into those. So, yeah, hopefully by the before Christmas, I'll be submitted. At least that's the that's the goal. Um, but, yeah, that's been really tough.
1: Yeah, I would imagine that. What What, what is your um, PhD advisor think of all of this? I mean, at some point, I'm sure he's realized that you weren't just doing something for thesis.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he loves what we're doing with Code Avengers and um, he, uh, he, he did. He went through the courses, I think, around just before I launched them, and and said, "Hey, you know, when you need investment money, I'm I'm keen to chuck some money into this." Um,
1: <laughs> well, that's a, well, that's a good uh, yeah, that's a good vote of confidence right there. He's a advisor, wants to invest in your company. That's pretty cool. I,
0: but at the same time, he said, "But don't you dare say another word to me about Code Avengers until you've submitted your thesis." So, um, yeah, I haven't really spoken to him a lot the last twelve months. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> But but yeah, I mean he's he's read and reviewed all by my last chapter, which is what I've been trying to write the last twelve months. So it's now this month is is when I finish it. <laughs> Fingers crossed.
1: Oh, so that's, oh, that's great. That's uh that's great. So you're gonna kind of have uh, get your cake and eat it too. You get your PhD and your uh, startup working. So that's pretty cool. Um. So I guess uh, I guess one last question. If and and sometimes this is a tough to answer, but you know if you can answer it, it'd be it'd be cool. But looking back, what would you say are the biggest mistakes that you've made, either from a tech side, from a pedagogical side to a business side i mean what what do you look back and realize you know you think back and you're like,, I oh, you wish you really hadn't done it that way?
0: Oh, there's a lot of things <laughs> I mean in my case, as I, as I said, first twelve months it wasn't even a a business. it was just sort of yeah, I'm just Doing this thing, you know, some free courses, helping educate people. Um, I think things would have been different. Would have been different if I actually had planned to do what I've actually done. You know, I would have approached things quite differently from the start. The starters trying to do a startup of this magnitude, of really any magnitude, without a co-founder, te- technical or business, um, is is really tough. So I, I think the main thing I would do differently if I could go back in time and, and, and speak to myself three years ago, I would say, find there's a, there's a bunch of people around that I've now met and I'm like, man, if I could have worked with this person, started working with this person as my co-founder, things would have been so much easier.
1: That's right. So the, so the biggest lesson then is, uh, I guess, find a co-founder early, um, and I guess you could still find, you could build, bring someone on. They wouldn't quite be a co-founder, but you could bring on somebody to play a very senior role in a company that might help. Um, yeah. Are you are you considering yeah. doing something like that?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I have these, some of these good people I'm talking about who I would have loved to have, you know, had on board as, as co-founders who I'm sort of luring in, you know, getting them to work at our camps and, and that sort of thing, um, or getting, you know, getting them to do bits and pieces with us. Um, but, yeah, I, I just don't think it's it's kind of hard now that you're established and you kind of own all the company to now say, you know, I mean, these are people who really they need ownership in a, in a company like this and a decent chunk of it for them to, I think, really be motivated. Um, either that or a really big salary, which I just don't have the money to pay at the moment. So, yeah, no, no I mean, having never done a – maybe I'm – Maybe even if I had a co founder, it, it, it wouldn't have been made much of a difference, but it's just that's what it, it feels like at the moment.
1: Yeah. And then again, it could be the grass is greener. You know, it's like yeah. if you're lucky enough to have the right co founder. Because a lot of times you get the wrong co founder. Either you have different visions or your skills don't complement each other quite like they need to, or you just have different expectations, or, you know, like, You know, I always joke about this, like when people say, oh, you know, I would work out, but I need a workout partner. And I was like, that's like the worst thing because (laughs) a partner stops working out. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to stop, you know, like they can't go like they can't meet you at the gym or at the track or at the pool or whatever it is that you guys do to work out because they have some work obligation or family obligation or they get the flu for a week or so. Well, then you're not going to go. And so really, it's like it's the you're only going to move as is is slow wheel kind of thing and so i don't know i mean you know if you get the right co-founder then yeah you're, you're right it's it's awesome but if you, if you don't get just the right co-founder sometimes it's even going to be worse you know at least yeah. at least yeah. you, you can't uh you can't argue with yourself so much <laughs> you know um but uh yeah anyway regardless of, of that i mean you've done an amazing job and it's it's it's, uh, it's impressive that you're doing as well financially, uh, as a company, I mean, $200,000 a year is, 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 is good. I mean, that's really good for a bootstrap company. And, uh, but even more impressive is that you created such a great product that so many people uh, around the world are using and enjoying and, uh, you know, really getting a lot out of, I mean, that's, that's a real testament. So that's really cool. Yeah. Um, so, and I think in the end
0: um, that, and I think in the end that, that feedback thing that was the thing that kept us going, the going in the first 18 months, months when 18 we weren't, making money you know getting all this positive feedback from around the world it it sort of didn't matter that we weren't making money that that provided enough motivation in and of itself
1: yeah yeah well it's uh you know that's uh i it's always nice to release stuff because if if you you know and, and anytime you build something there's always this resistance to releasing it because it's not ready and you're not ready to get criticism on it but you know once you start release it and you get that positive feedback it's it really is kind of a high in and of itself even without the money so that's another reason to like get stuff out there and get people using it even before you charge um but uh well anyway uh michael it was great having you on the show really appreciate you taking as much time as you have uh to, to tell your story and 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 talk about code avengers because uh i think there's a lot to learn from from what you've done it's uh, really cool really uh really great product and Really exciting to see what you guys are able to do. Thanks a lot, Jason. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Pleasure to talk to you. That's a wrap. We're out.